Hi everyone, I'm Carla. And I'm Iman. And you're listening to Screensaver, a podcast about all things pop culture, including TV, movies, books, and sports. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the fantastic second season of FX's Fargo. We'll talk about its impressive range of characters and its unique mastery of style and tone. After this, we'll wrap things up with some pop culture news. You don't want to miss it. Stay with us. Whole world. We're just out of balance. Used to know right from wrong. Moral center. Now, do yourself a favor. Lock the door. Hit him again. Give me a chocolate, please. I want to be the best me I can be. You're dancing with the wrong girl. I'm not afraid of a war. Watch your toes now. Suppose we ought to get that down. Fargo, all new Mondays at 10 on FX. I think that trailer alone captures the wonderful way Fargo balances suspense and intensity with humor. But before we get into breaking the series down, let's start with a little bit of plot talk. I'm going to back it up even further for the listeners who might not be familiar with the show's premise and give a little bit of a summary. Fargo is a comedy crime drama television series, it's a mouthful, created and primarily written by Noah Hawley. The show is inspired by the 1996 Coen Brothers film of the same name and is currently in the middle of its second season. So given that it's following an anthology format, kind of like True Detective, each season is set in a different era along with a different story, a different cast, a different set of characters. The first season did make an effort to try to tie its storyline to the plot of the movie, and I didn't see any of it. Carla watched a bit of it, but we ended up just deciding to dive right into season two, and man, there are so many twists and turns that, in terms of actual plot talk, I'm just going to hand it off to you, Cuddly. All right, I'll give it a shot. So, season two turns the clock back to 1979, when a gang of Kansas City mafia goons embodied by Brad Garrett and Bokeem Woodbine are muscling in on the North Dakota territory controlled by the Gerhard family. Here's where the plot thickens, though. What appears first to be a straightforward mob war is quickly complicated when Rye, the youngest and arguably the dumbest of the Gerhard sons, goes rogue and winds up in a bloody pickle all his own, involving a state judge, a Minnesota diner, and a small-town couple with big dreams. And that couple is played by Jesse Plemons and Kirsten Dunst. Soon enough, a state trooper, Lou Solverson, played by Patrick Wilson, is drawn in, and what results next is nothing short of, dare I say, delightful chaos? Bullets fly, butcher aprons are bloodied, and to top it all off, UFOs and Ronald Reagan cameos are thrown in for good measure. I think that wild ride of a plot (laughs) summary is about the best anyone could do. This show is... Absolutely insane. And the way that you broke down the plot actually shows it's very layered and nuanced. Um, But more than anything, even though it seems like a somewhat convoluted plot, I'd say it's just one of the funnest shows to watch right now. Definitely. Compared to other prestige crime dramas like True Detective, I know you mentioned it earlier, 
Fargo is a show that explores rich, suspenseful drama while at the same time embracing eccentricity and allowing itself to have moments of pure comedy. Yeah, I think it's it has a light touch. Yeah. It never takes itself too, too seriously, kind of like a Coen Brothers movie. But the fact that it's kind of maintained that sensibility makes it like you mentioned, it's it's fun to watch. Yeah, like in the middle of a fight scene, for example, a character brandishing a cattle prod stops to order a donut. Or in another scene, you see hitmen exchange hair washing tips. All of this sounds absurd out of context, but when you're watching it within the world of the show, which is this little Minnesota, all of them with their like cute accents and everything's kind of kitschy. It just it fits in a way that I would never have expected it to fit. And to be honest, I had no interest in watching the first season. And for some reason, we just decided to give the second season a shot, and I've loved it. Yeah, I think the second season has received even more critical appraise than the first season has. But lower ratings. Yeah, I mean, if our effusive praise isn't selling it enough, why don't we dig even deeper into why we think it's it's fun? I mean, we've talked about the comedy yeah. and the sensibility that the show maintains, but I think the characters are probably... Yeah, I think one of the biggest surprises is that as horrendous as a lot of the characters' actions can be, they're all people you want to spend time with. I think we've talked about this in previous podcasts, but character development is huge for us. Mm -hmm. And again, in Fargo, there's a huge ensemble cast, and all of them are really rich and complex, even the quote-unquote villains. Yeah. Who do you want to start with? Let's start with our favorite character, Lou Salverson, played by Patrick Wilson. He plays a state trooper or like a sheriff type character. Yeah, he's one of the main characters that we kind of cycle between. And he's like a slice of American pie without ever feeling corny. The classic archetypal good guy. And he's the hero of the show. I'd say you are meant to experience the show through his eyes. Mm -hmm. And the show does a good job of that. Yeah. I mean, on the opposite side of the spectrum, we have Dodd Gerhardt, who's one of the Irish mobster sort of guys. He's the oldest son in the Gerhardt gang, and he's played by... The guy from Burn Notice plus 100 pounds, give or take. And plus an accent. Plus an accent. He's done a really good job of being a just likable bad guy. I mean, he's not even that likable, but he just does such a good job at playing the role with comedic nuances and being... A character that, there are scenes where he, he doesn't say anything, but it's just like with an eye movement, you can tell he's up to something. So he's completely unpredictable as far as villains go. He he does these crazy things and he's not averse to violence whatsoever. But at the same time, you have these moments of tenderness with him. There's a scene where he's sitting in the back seat of a car with his mom and he just sort of rests his head on her shoulder. Yeah. It's these moments that really, that humanize both sides, the protagonists and the antagonists. And I think that the blurring between those two 
factions is something that goes on in so many of these difficult men dramas like Mad Men or all these. But with this one, you do have a pretty set line between the good guys and the bad guys. But the fact that they're taking time to humanize both sides kind of makes you sympathize with both of them. Um, one of the characters that's probably smack dab in the middle of the good guys and the bad guys is the local butcher who's played by Jesse Plemons. This is Ed Blomquist. And he... Oh, man. the Talk about being caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. Definitely. Not to give too, too much away, but he's just this very, like... He could have very easily been, like, a local color sort of character. He's this, you know just a local butcher but he gets he gets wrapped into uh the Gerhardt family after an accident with his wife and one of the Gerhardt gang members I'm trying to be vague not to give too many spoilers but Jesse Plemons does a really great job he had a minor role in Breaking Bad and in Friday Night Lights so seeing him come back kind of playing an adult husband is surprising but he's done a he's done a great job yeah he has i think He's another one of those uh, characters you can get behind because he he seems so pure in his in his desires to conquest or achieve the American dream. He also seems a lot less worldly than uh, Patrick Wilson's character. He's Lou. a lot more naive. He seems younger, more naive, and he thinks, "All right, well, if I if I buy the butcher, uh, if I buy the, the butcher shop, butcher shop, and we're gonna have kids, and I'm gonna have kids with my wife, and we're gonna raise them in the same town that I grew up in." It's like very small dreams, and you can tell he hasn't seen much of the world. So when he gets embroiled in this bigger plot that is just not in his plan, you can see him kind of panicking. It's going to be interesting. Like I mentioned, we're halfway through the season, and you can already start to see his character change through his experiences. Oh, yeah. So I think toward the end, he's not going to be as squeaky clean. And as squeaky clean. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting to see his character progress and change over time. It's, it's a really intriguing arc, and I think we've already seen him kind of fall from grace in certain certain respects so i think that's one that it, it's definitely worth tuning in i guess tilting back to the to the the villain side the villain things. side probably the most villainous in such a strange way this is uh, i'm talking about mike milligan he's played by bokeem woodbine a name that's super fun to say bokeem woodbine <laughs> uh he is a kansas city mobster but he is kind of even on the fringes of the baddies. He's kind of a lone ranger of sorts. And I think it's interesting to note, I mean, this show takes place in the Midwest, and he is an African-American character. He is not a typical villain whatsoever because he's so witty and charming, but not in a way that's off-putting. It's not off-putting, but... I mean, we had this in a conversation with our dad. Anytime he's on screen, you just feel so stressed because, I mean, if you think Dodd is unpredictable, Dodd is unpredictable in the sense of when he's when is he going to have an outburst of violence. I think with Mike Milligan, the unpredictability is he could. It, it's just you he don't even on, know. Yeah, at any moment. I think we have a, a clip that really embodies this unpredictability. Let's play it. 
Say, you wouldn't by any chance be Mike Milligan in the kitchen, brothers, would you? You make us sound like a prog rock band. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing Mike Milligan and the Kitchen Brothers. <sighs> Double whoops. Easy. Minnesota cop. You do know you're in North Dakota, right? Must have got lost on the way to the lake. So in this scene, this is actually the first time Lou meets Mike Milligan. Yeah. And he he stumbles across him when he walks into this business and was totally not prepared to meet him, and they encounter each other in, in a standoff of sorts. Yeah, I think uh, Mike Milligan is a character that he does have, like, these two henchmen with him, and I think that kind of con- concentrates the violence outside of himself. So he has these two hitmen with him at all times, which allows him to be kind of the jokester in the center of them but he also has this muscle behind him which just makes him such an intimidating figure and anytime he's on screen i just keep thinking like okay is someone gonna die is i mean it's just he speaks with a lot of bravado yeah a lot of panache and i think um that's what makes him really fun to watch but at the same time is so terrifying exactly so up until this point, he's actually been a pretty friendly guy as far as mobsters go. But something happened mid-season that makes me think that's about to change. And I'm really looking forward to seeing it. I think we're going to see a much meaner side of him. Yeah, I think we're going to see... The darkness has been kind of rising to the surface, but I think it's going to it's gonna break through soon. Let's switch gears now and talk about the female characters in the show. Yeah, this is something that I've been pretty impressed by. And I shouldn't be impressed by it, given that the original Fargo had a female lead that was absolutely fantastic. But I think that the show has done a good job of kind of continuing that legacy in this season with um, the characters of Peggy Blomquist, who's the the butcher's kind of less naive wife, a character we should talk about, uh, Floyd as well, who's kind of the matriarch of the, of the Gerhardt the gang. Gerhard gang. Uh-huh. And finally, Betsy Salverson, who's the character, she's Lou's wife with cancer. But yeah, I guess we can start from the top with Peggy. What sure. do you think about her? I mean, I think all of these characters are really great at, none of them have come off as being a victim by any means. Mm-hmm. So Peggy, for example does experience something pretty traumatic at the beginning and she kind of brushes it off in a way that is almost creepy she's disturbingly okay with everything that's going on it almost seems like she's so hungry to just get out of this little town that she's she's willing for any excuse yeah she's willing to turn anything into an opportunity to escape uh which is interesting because as we mentioned jesse plemons her husband seems desperate to stay in the town and have nothing change, whereas she's willing to take anything, even tragedy, as an excuse to escape. I think one of the most interesting things about her character is that throughout the first five episodes, you're kind of questioning her commitment to her husband. Yeah. Because she seems so willing to leave everything and just go to California. I think the fact that We even know she wants to go to California, though. This speaks to how subtle the show is. Really, the only indication that we get about this before she flat out says it is 
earlier in the season, you see she has like a, a postcard for Hollywood or something, like yeah. Hollywood Beach or whatever. The show is really good at putting in these tiny details so that we just feel like we know these characters so well. We know what makes them tick and we know what their dreams are. Definitely. I think another thing that's interesting about her is we mentioned the show takes place in the late 70s. This is a time when women's liberation Mm -hmm. was huge and she is a character who's really vocal about that. She wants to take... A seminar. Uh, a seminar on bettering herself and things that were... Yeah, I want to be the best me that I can be, yeah. She's, um... I mean, it sounds kind of cultish, the things she wants to get into, but at the same time, the fact that she's even vocal about it... And, and it speaks to the era, I think. I yeah. mean, I would say she's... I want to say she's a strong, independent woman, but she's also kind of influenced by... She has a female co-worker that's very women's lib, and it kind of feels like she's being influenced by different factors. But again, she is kind of half of a very, well, somewhat naive couple mm-hmm. that has insane things happen to them. Um, someone that's definitely not naive is uh, the next female character we want to talk about, who's Floyd Gerhardt, who's the matriarch of this Gerhardt gang. Yeah, she's the one who, something happens to her husband early on in the season, and she is undoubtedly the one who's calling all the shots. Yeah, she's put in charge, but I think what I really enjoy about her character is that she's a a villain in a position of power. Who's very level-headed. Who's very level-headed, and she's not ever depicted as malicious i mean she's ultimately in charge of people doing terrible things Mm -hmm. but the show is so good at fleshing her out and giving us these quiet scenes where we see at the end of the day she is a loving mother and she's a loving mother and grandmother but she is so she's very capable and it's not taking her position of power is something that's abusive or that makes her a bad mother or i just think as a female character it's very well done she's a fleshed out human which is unfortunately sometimes a lot to ask of a television show but they just did a really great job with her characterization finally we have we mentioned betsy solverson who's a character With cancer, I've mentioned it three times, it's by no means her defining attribute, I think. Yeah, if anything, I think it's impressive to see how much she doesn't rely on that characteristic as a crutch. She almost is stubborn in the way that she doesn't want to acknowledge she has cancer and she wants to continue her life living it as normal as possible. She's a really strong character. And she's another one that's incredibly capable. Even though her husband is pretty much the protagonist of the show, he's a sheriff that's figuring out a lot of the, like, he's picking apart crime scenes and stuff. Mm -hmm. She does contribute a lot. You said this from the beginning. I mean, none of these, all of these women have gone through, like, they're afflicted women, I guess you can say. You have Peggy who, I mean, something big happens to her. Uh, Floyd, her husband, is... Like, has a stroke that's Mm -hmm. not giving too much away. Betsy has cancer. All of these women are in positions where they could very easily go the route of victims, but none of them ever fully 
become victims, which has been has been fun to watch. Oh, definitely. Another thing that's really fun to watch in this show is just the style of it. Mm-hmm. Visually, it's as interesting to watch as a show like Mr. Robot or Breaking Bad. And mm-hmm. I think the techniques it employs to give it a true 1970s crime drama feel are so fun to watch. Yeah, it even reminds me of, um, we talked earlier this year about The Man from Uncle. Hmm. Which employed a lot of split screens and made it a lot of cool music, made it feel very, like, crime spy drama sort of thing. And Yeah, split screens slide on and off the screen in ways I haven't seen on TV before. And yeah, never. There are, you know, chilly vistas that are frequently complemented with soulful tunes. The show has a great soundtrack that features Fleetwood Mac, Billy Thorpe, Count Basie, and other... Musicians. Other bands and musicians that were popular at the time. Yeah, it, it it seems like they've just been so thoughtful about the way that they're styling the show. And it it's one of the shows that, I think I mentioned this with Mr. Robot as well, I put my phone down and actually watch the screen because it's so fun to watch what they're doing. And all of it is in service to the plot. Yeah, in terms of framing and details like that, we've... We've mentioned to each other that it reminds us a lot of even a Wes Anderson movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, something that's also pretty impressive, I don't know if this is stylistically or just in terms of the TV show itself, but it does also have these scenes that are completely silent. Yeah, I think even in that clip we played, there's no music or no sound in the background. Yeah, and, and I mean, there are long periods that don't even have dialogue Mm. the the scene that you described with god leaning into his mother that scene is entirely silent it's just him leaning into his mom and her patting his cheek it's very attentive to its like just visuals and probably doing as much as it can with as little dialogue as is possible which is really impressive for a crime drama series because you would think it would rely a lot on its action sequences to get yeah with a plot like that Mm -hmm. you would think it would either have crazy action or go the route of narcos where it has uh that's the netflix show of course that's blown up just way 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 too much narration Oh, Mind you, I've only watched one episode, so I'm being completely... <laughs> this is a hot take. But yeah, I'm, I'm impressed that, the, that it hasn't... It, it's trusted its own ability to... Or it's trusted its audience yeah. to interpret the story. Neither of us have seen season one. I'm a little bit more curious to go back and watch it now, but I think... All in all, by season two, everyone, at least all the critics, have been saying the show has really, it's hit its stride, and it seems to be doing amazingly well. I would actually, uh, I'd recommend uh, an episode of the Andy Greenwald podcast with the show's creator. That kind of shaped the way that I've been watching the show, and I think it, I recommend it if you're, if you've been at all curious yeah, so how about some final takeaways for Fargo? What would you say? I would say watch it and talk to me about it because <laughs> no one is watching this show. And I think we've been talking about it for almost half an hour now. And I still have plenty more to say. Yeah, um, Easily, it's the best show on TV right now. Yeah, it's probably one of the only shows that I get really excited about knowing that it's on each week. 
Yeah. And despite following so many characters and storylines, it never feels heavy. as if it's difficult to follow mm-hmm. or heavy. I don't know if we've done a good job of proving that with our convoluted talk. <laughs> yeah, but if you've stuck through this whole conversation, you'd be doing yourself a disservice if you didn't at least give the first couple episodes a shot. All right, after the break, we'll catch up on some pop culture news. People out the earth, can you hear me? Came a voice from the sky on a magical night. And in the colors of a thousand sunsets, they travel to the world on a silvery light. Okay, so the past few weeks have been pretty huge in terms of pop culture news, and being that there have been a lot of developments on topics we've actually discussed here on the podcast, we figured it was time to bring back our pop culture news segment, How Do We Feel About This? First up, it seems like there has been a ton of Harry Potter news lately. Entertainment Weekly recently released the first production stills from Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the Harry Potter prequel, I'm saying that in air quotes, based on a Hogwarts textbook by the same name. As we've discussed before, Eddie Redmayne plays a magic zoologist, Newt Scamander, who embarks on adventure in 1926 New York. We now know the movie will feature an American wizarding school as well as an American version of the Ministry of Magic. Seriously? Yeah, but... One of the details that everyone's been fixated on is the introduction of the American term for muggles or non-magical individuals, and that term is non-mag. What do you think about this, Iman? So dumb. (laughs) Yeah, I'm still reeling. I had originally thought that this movie would be kind of more of a catalog of his adventures and that it would just start out in in 1926 New York. Mm Mm-hmm. And I had been kind of hoping that you would travel to other countries. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear it's staying predominantly in the U.S. or at least in New York. God, well, this this non-mag is pretty disappointed. (laughs) In response to the term, I think it's so dumb, but since I heard it, I've been trying to think of something to replace it with, and I can't think of anything. Well, I think... The biggest issue, at least for me with it, is that it's so literal. Yeah, and it just sounds dumb. Yeah. It sounds very... I think what they were trying to do is get that sort of 1920s slang, like, ah, he's a non-mad, she. (laughs) But I just... Yeah, I don't I don't even think it's necessary. What did you think of the stills that you saw? So last time, last time we talked about this movie, we had just found out that Eddie Redmayne was cast as the main character. A and pretty I conventional think, casting choice, I have to admit. Yeah, but after looking at the stills, I think it was a good choice. He looks the part, and I think it'll be interesting. I also found out that Matt Smith... Yeah? And... Uh, from Doctor Who. From Doctor Who, and the guy who used to date... Jennifer Lawrence. Oh, Nicholas Holt? They were both in consideration for the part. But I think Matt Smith was too on the nose. Mm -hmm. It would have been too obvious of a choice. And Nicholas Holt, I don't know. I didn't see it. So after seeing Eddie Redmayne, I thought he he looks the part. 
That's probably one of the only people I know that has read the book, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. For some reason, I thought he'd be a little older because mm. the book contains a pretty vast catalog of magical creatures. But if this is him while he's writing it, yeah, I, it's I probably guess it at makes the sense. beginning of his adventures. Yeah, it makes sense. I'm not, for some reason, I'm not all that excited about this movie. I'm a diehard Harry Potter fan, but. I'm a bigger fan of the books than I am the movies, so part of me feels like they're just trying to explode the universe to get as much money out of it as they can. Well, hold on to your hats, because here's our second piece of news. Vanity Fair released an article titled, J.K. Rowling has written a Harry Potter sequel. I think I've been tricked so many times by headlines like this that my eyes kind of glazed over when I read this. I read it as well and skimmed it. (laughs) But it turns out it's sort of true. A two-part play is currently under production titled Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Here's the official synopsis. Are you ready for this? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm going to read it anyway. It was always difficult being Harry Potter, and it isn't much easier now that he's an overworked employee of the Ministry of Magic, a husband and a father of three school-aged children. While Harry grapples with a past that refuses to stay where it belongs, his youngest son, Albus, must struggle with the weight of a family legacy he never wanted. As past and present fuse ominously, Both father and son learn the uncomfortable truth. Sometimes darkness comes from unexpected places. Okay, here's my question. Is this story even necessary? No. (laughs) Next question. (laughs) Um, This is a play? Yeah, a two-part play. So she's taking the... The seventh book slash movie approach of splitting it into two, but on a in a play. That's right. Okay, here's... <laughs> okay, y'all. Let me break this down. The fact that it's a play, to me, just makes it feel like it's so... Like, by definition, that's inherently inaccessible. Yeah. She knows there are so many fans out there that would love to get their hands on even just, like, a copy of the script or release it as a book. I feel like what J.K. Rowling has done, which... Well, okay, in the money-making sphere, imagine they're going to make money off the play, part one, part two, and then Warner Brothers is going to come in and say, okay, let's make a movie adaptation. I don't even, at this point, I don't even care if she's doing it for the money or whatever. That's fine. She should make money off of this, but think of how much more money she would make if she, like, this doesn't even make sense from a financial perspective, because if she wanted to make money off of this, she could have released it just as a book. Yeah. I feel like she just dug herself in a grave. Okay, I love Queen Rowling. I should probably put that as, like, my, I don't know, preamble to anything I'm about to say. But it just feels like she keeps putting up roadblocks to her own content. Like, it happened like with anything, Pottermore, yeah, I was just about where to she say. just want, she wanted to release more content, but she had told herself, or she had told everyone, I'm done with the books. I don't know if she's being stubborn in the way that she wants she she said she wasn't gonna make it an eighth book and she is sticking to is it. sticking to her guns but i feel sometimes it would have just been easier if she just released another book honestly i mean if she wants to start 
this, the plot synopsis you just read me sounds like at least 50 fanfic that exists. Next gen, they call it next gen fan Harry Potter fanfic. I probably should not reveal the fact that I know anything about fanfic, but still. Yeah. I just, it, it's really frustrating to me that I know it's already sold out. I did hear about stuff like that where it was just like insane trying to get tickets. And I get that that is good for creating hype, but mm-hmm. it's like, is she trying to create hype or is she trying to get a story out there that she cares about and she, that she knows is so important to a lot of people, including myself? So I'm just, I'm frustrated by this. I don't like it. And then J.K. Rowling also had her Robert Galbraith novels. She had a casual vacancy. She's branched out. And I understand that probably like any actor, she doesn't want to be typecasted or I guess whatever the equivalent of that within the writing world is. Mm-hmm. But... I love Harry Potter. I absolutely love Harry Potter. I can read the books over and over and over again, and I'm not even really clamoring for more material. I feel like there's enough there. There's enough there, but I mean, when it's coming out, and if she wants to do it, I mean, more power to her, but honestly, I saw so many headlines for this, and I just skimmed over them. Yeah. Well... We'll see what happens. That was a very long rant. (laughs) Speaking of surprising sequels, we recently found out that Netflix has closed a deal with Warner Brothers for a limited series revival of Gilmore Girls in the form of four 90-minute episodes. They'll all be co-written and directed by series creator Amy Sherman Palladino and her husband-slash-executive producer Daniel Palladino. And according to insiders, each episode will represent a different season over the course of one calendar year. So, for example, there will be an episode for spring, winter, summer, and fall. We've also learned they'll be set in the present day, and that negotiations with the show's primary cast are said to be underway. So, (laughs) what do you think of the winter, spring, summer, fall thing? It's interesting. Yeah? I think it fits with the show. The show originally had 20, 22 episode seasons, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it kind of gave us a sense of the full calendar year anyway. Yeah. Um, this, I like that. This is part of a larger revival trend in television right now. We have things like yeah. Full House, Coach, and X-Files coming back. How do we feel about this? I think this is something that we touched on earlier with the Jurassic Park movie. Like, this is something that's happening in movies, too. It's happening everywhere. Yeah. I feel like from a business point of view, it makes sense, especially for these shows that are coming back, because attention toward a lot of these shows have been revived by popular podcasts like Gilmore Guys and X-Files Files. So it makes sense that production studios would want to capitalize on the popularity. And upon an established brand, because if you look at the process of producing pilots, there are hundreds that are produced, and it's such a huge gamble because, like... Very I, little of them very, actually Yeah, get made. very few of them actually get made. So I can, I can definitely understand why they would want to flock to well-loved and already popular assets. Yeah, Um, and I feel like in the case of Gilmore Girls, I really appreciate the fact that Amy Sherman Palladino is involved. Most fans are well aware of the fact that she wasn't involved in the production of the seventh Mm -hmm. and final season of the show. 
which left many to feel like they were robbed of the ending that had always been envisioned for the series. So now it seems like we'll be experiencing something rare in the fact that a writer is given the opportunity to course correct the trajectory of a show she hasn't been a part of for almost 10 years. Yeah, I think actually I'm not as turned off to this as I would be to, let's say, yeah, Harry (laughs) Potter stuff, because it doesn't feel like there was ever a neat bow Mm -hmm. that that tied up the series as a whole. So as with Harry Potter, whereas with Harry Potter, I was so satisfied by the ending and it felt so final and I grieved it and I warned it and I've gone back that when they open it up again it kind of feels like no no that bow was perfect you're ruining it yeah whereas with Gilmore Girls it feels like they're writing a wrong I didn't hate the seventh season but we all know that it wasn't what Amy Sherman Palladino wanted to do yeah so it's exciting to me that she gets a shot to do it I like the fact that it's just four episodes it's not going to be like trying to relaunch the whole series or reboot it yeah um, I'm actually, I'm all in on this. Yeah, and I think it's it's smart of Netflix. I think this is a service they can do to television in general. Yeah. Offering up this option for a lot of shows where people just want that finality. So I think the big question with this, are you going to see it? And I yeah. Like, yeah, for me too. Of course I am. Of course and I'm going to watch this. I also can't wait to see what the Gilmore guys are going to say about it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I think it's, uh, I'm probably going to watch this. I'm probably going to watch the Fantastic Beasts and where to find the movie, even if it's somewhat grudgingly. <laughs> I'm not going to see the play because it's in England. I'm sure I'll see gifts. God. <laughs> We're a lot more bitter about the Harry Potter stuff than the Gilmore Girls stuff. Yeah. But it comes from a place of love. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that pretty much sums things up for pop culture news is there anything else you want to add no all right well for the rest of you listening out there let us know what you think about these reboots and revivals you can follow us on twitter at screensaver pod and like our facebook page screensaver podcast as always you can also find our other episodes of screensaver on itunes and we've never really asked this before but leave us a review it'll really help Yeah. And we're curious to see what you say. Yeah. If 30% of you review, we'll have one review. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that. We'll see. Anyway, thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Bye. What you see, what you see, is what you get, is what you get.